You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, fishermen, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles. So here on the Marin Coast, we've been seeing the signs of upwelling with strong winds, cold ocean temperatures as low as 49 degrees at our coastal buoys, humpback and blue whales returning, and even krill washing up on the beaches. It's an exciting time of year on the West Coast where the ocean really starts churning and stimulating the food web. Seabirds are setting up nests and getting ready to lay eggs and benefit from all the food production in the coastal ocean. Some seabirds, though, are facing challenging times with habitat erosion, and thankfully to innovative collaborations between ecologists, habitat restoration experts, land managers, artists, and designers, conditions are improving. On the first half of the show, we'll be discussing a really innovative and cross-disciplinary program that is bringing together all these different people to really help solve this conservation issue. And we have Michelle Hester joining us from Oikonos Ecosystem Knowledge to tell us all about this project. And on the second half of the show, we're going to explore how scientists are building programs to bring interested volunteers into the fold to help collect valuable data to help better understand our changing world and habitats and specifically in the intertidal zone here in California. So we'll be diving into the world of volunteer science and talking with Rebecca Johnson of the California Academy of Sciences Citizen Science Program. And I have a lot of announcements to share after these two interviews. It's World Oceans Day this week, so a lot of stuff to be contemplating as we talking with our guests today. So stick with us. We have a full show. talk about seabirds and what's happening on Año Nuevo Island. So I really would love to welcome my guest, Michelle Hester, to the air and talk about this program. So welcome back, Michelle. You're live on the air. Hi, Jenny. For folks just tuning in, Michelle Hester is a president of Oikonos Ecosystem Knowledge. And Michelle, you've been on our show, but it's been many years. Maybe you can remind us, tell us all about Oikonos Ecosystem Knowledge and what this group is all about. Yeah, we were actually a, a nonprofit organization that was born in uh, Bolinas, born in West Marin, um, and 
We work now in California, Hawaii, and Chile, and all of our programs have a, they share a core mission to investigate and protect imperiled ecosystems. And we do this by engaging diverse communities in artistic and scientific collaborations. And mainly, a lot of our work is on island, islands and island species. And we're studying um, the seabirds, landbirds, plants, sometimes frogs that live on these islands um, for their protection because a lot of them are critically endangered. Um, but we're also studying them because they track things like ocean conditions and changes that are happening on the island. So they're also really good indicators of these ecosystems that we're trying to learn about and protect. So you've been working on Año Nuevo Island, which is just south of Half Moon Bay, and you've been working there for many years. Can you tell us a little bit about Año Nuevo Island, some of the natural history about it? Was it attached to the mainland at one point? And there is some human history out there, too. Yeah, it's a really fascinating island. And so I've been working there for uh, 25 years. Um, and it has definitely captured my um, you know, interest and, and love for a long time. And part of it is because of its history and also because it is just a rare piece of real estate off California. We just don't have enough island space. Um, so we think in the 1600s it was still connected. Um, so it has, for an island, it has an interesting history because ecologically it has um, the same coastal plant communities and probably even had predators on it like coyotes. Um, when, you know, in the 1600s. And then because of our eroding coast, naturally eroding coast, it became an island. And since then, it's changed a lot through the years between whaling and sealing, um, lots of hunting. Um, they pretty much decimated the seal populations. And then it became a lighthouse because there were lots of wrecks um, around that area, and it became a really important aid to navigation. And for almost 100 years, it was a place where lighthousekeepers lived and had their families. Um, it's a, only a kilometer offshore, and, and you can see it from the mainland, but a lot of people don't even notice it. Um, but it is a pretty treacherous channel with sharks and kind of unpredictable wave action, and there, there were deaths, and it definitely has this reputation of being a hard place to get to. Wow. So in terms of, um, I'm thinking about the seabirds specifically, because that's a lot of the work that you've been working on, they, and being so close to the mainland, such easy access for people to to take things there. Um, what have been some of the other, well, what are the, some of the seabirds that breed out on Anunuevo? There are probably eight, um, eight seabirds. Um, there's seven seabirds that we study. There's um a species that's related to a puffin. It's called a rhinoceros auklet. There are Cassin's auklets. Um, these are both diving birds that dive for krill and forage fish. Um, pigeon guillemots, which a lot of people have seen on the coast, also nest out there. Um, there's three species of cormorants. Uh, our western gull, which is endemic to our area here. And likely the um, ashy storm petrel probably breeds on the island but we haven't found any nests yet. Oh, that's exciting, a little mystery to, to figure out. And are there pinnipeds breeding on the island itself, or is it more of a haul-out location? It's important um, pupping site as well. It's actually the southern extent of the stellar sea lions, 
it's um, kind of the closest place to the coast and the farthest south for stellar sea lions to pup. Because um, we're definitely at sort of the edge of a lot of the cold water species, like rhinoceros socklets and stellar sea lions. Um, and it's really fun to study species at their edge because that's when you can usually first detect changes in climate and changes in, in what they need. Um, but it's also, of course, it's famous for elephant seals. So people flock there. It's one of the most visited California state parks because people come to see the elephant seals fight and mate and have pups. And they're almost extinct. And it's definitely a success story that they came back um, from hunting. And in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, they started to increase slowly. And now there's this thriving pupping area for um, northern elephant seals. Yeah, that's an amazing story for sure. So the island is obviously very valuable habitat for these seabirds and for some breeding seabirds. Why has the habitat degraded so much? Well, it was for you know almost 100 years. It was um, a lightkeeper station, and there were Coast Guard families living, putting up fences, you know, kind of interacting with the wildlife to make it <laughs> a livable place. And the whole island is only about nine acres, including the rocks. And so it's a small space, um, just very easily altered. So the native plant community um, was definitely reduced. And we have a naturally eroding coastline anyway. And then it just was, um, I'd say the, the amount of erosion was definitely increased by, you know, human adaptation and changes that we made on the island. And... So our, it became really obvious that this was one of the things that would really help the seabirds, especially the seabirds that live underground. We really needed to stabilize their soil because up to 70% of the burrows in some years were being collapsed. And this was really um, threatening their survivorship on that island. The collapsing because the soil on top was unstable without the native vegetation? Right, exactly. So with this long-term monitoring that Oikonos, and I know um, PRBO was involved early on as well, how did this come together? You've been a part of a big restoration effort on the island, and when did this collaboration come together to really start to restore the island? Well, in 1993, we began studying the rhinoceros hawklets in particular, and um, we were watching how the population was increasing, and that was really exciting because in California, a lot of you know ocean wildlife species were declining. So it was really interesting to watch this this piece of land once you protected it, um, and if they have sufficient prey availability, um, populations will recover. And so we were documenting that, and I'd say for a good ten years we were documenting it and watching it, and I just couldn't I couldn't stand by anymore and not take active, you know, active role in improving their habitat because it was really obvious what they needed, and what they needed was simply to have a stable place to nest and a safe place to raise their young. And we developed some pretty big goals. You know, we wanted, we wanted this habitat restoration to basically outlast us, and we knew that we needed more expertise. We needed to bring in people that are thinking on a large scale for land restoration, and we also needed to bring in some innovation. We needed to bring in designers and architects and artists to not only stabilize the habitat, but also improve 
the uh, artificial homes that had been used for many years. Um, we would install plastic and wooden nest boxes. A lot of um, a lot of animals benefit by having you know artificial nest boxes, and that also is the case for seabirds. Um, but we really wanted to improve their artificial homes so that they would be more stable. Um, and we brought in some ceramic artists, and we started this collaboration with many different people. How did you determine clay? Is clay just a more long-lasting material for stabilizing underground burrows? We kind of did an exploration. So we've been using um, wood and plastic for many years, and it just became too hard to maintain. It became too difficult to make sure that um, the boxes didn't become actual traps. And we just knew that we could do better. And so we started experimenting with materials. And, you know, we, we brought in experts and we started really thinking about concrete, composites, different things. And when we started working with Nathan Lynch, he's a master ceramicist at the California College of the Arts, it just became really clear that ceramics is the material that is natural, it's actually not very expensive. It's really it's easy to customize you know and you can make nests that look more like their natural burrows they can dig three meter burrows and they can make turns and forks and it, ceramics really gives you the ability to customize and and create um, tunnels and nest cavities that look more natural and i always had the impression that ceramics were fragile and i've you know learned a lot through this that Obviously, you can make ceramics, and a good example is like sewer pipes that have lasted hundreds of years. You can make ceramics incredibly strong, and that's what we did. We set out to make extremely durable, sustainable, customized nesting modules that were safe for many different species uh, to raise their young inside. So you actually approached the California College of Arts as a partner to help solve this problem. What was their reaction in terms of an arts institution being approached to help solve an ecological problem? Well, it is it's new. And I think the fact that it was you know, new and innovative was exciting. And you know, Nathan Lynch in particular, he's the chair of the ceramics department at California College of the Arts. And he, he always has this vision that he wants to make art that matters. And this just really fit in with um, the vision of their program. And it became really interesting because, you know, and it's still happening, um, we created uh, coursework around this. So there's students from design, architecture, and ceramics. The students are actually coming up with solutions to the problems. Like so, some of our problems would be on one island there are ravens that are attacking the seabirds. So one problem would be, how do we design a, a nest site where ravens cannot get inside? Or how do we design a nest site that won't flood? And one we're working on right now that the students are helping with is, how do we design a nest site that won't overheat? Um, because we do have some hot days. Mm -hmm. And they just embraced it, and it's now an ongoing course at the, the California College of the Arts, and it's become kind of part of their program. That is really amazing, and I, I love this example of coming together to design solutions for 
adaptation as we move forward with these rapidly evolving habitats on the coastline. That's great. Have some of the students come out to the island itself so they can really see it and experience it and see the habitats that they're designing towards? Yeah, we've we've done that some. It is a really sensitive habitat and it is hard to get out there and we but we you know, we try to make up for the fact that they don't get to directly experience it. Um, you know, that is one of our challenges with a lot of remote work and mm. multidisciplinary work is to bring people together. Um, but they're we're really inspired and really excited to be, you know, working for a client too that's a that's a seabird. It's a, a new concept for a lot of the students. <laughs> that's great. You have this approach with helping with the burrows under the wa- under the earth. How about the terrain on top and approaching the vegetation? And have you been working on revegetating the surface as well? Yes, yes. We've planted lots of of the native plants from the coastal area. Also, direct erosion control to stabilize the soil immediately. We we've used matting, some natural degradable matting that does hold down the soil, and we've reduced the percentage of burrows that collapse every year to between 5 and 10%. Probably as good as, you know, good as we can get with the species that, that digs in the sand. And then there are also seabirds that nest on the surface. So you've got these um, multiple species that are cohabitating above and below ground. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy out there, that the density of wildlife. I have a little audio recording that I found I want to share listeners about of a rhinoceros auklet. It's really quick. So they have this fun little moan to them, like a little groan. Were there other birds that you were hearing in the background there, too? No, mostly rhinoceros auklets. There might have been some some Cassin's auklets singing in the back as well. Pretty pretty noisy place to be. Yeah, and especially at night. At night, it sounds completely different than during the day as well. Um, So that's the other part. Not not only is it isolated on the island, but you've got this um, nocturnal life. A lot of the birds are out feeding during the day, and they only come back to take care of their chicks um, after dark. It's so cool. I love their, their, how they are busy at night, kind of secret operatives out there. So since you've been doing this restoration, what are some of the changes you've seen in terms of uh, breeding success for the birds? Just the fact that the burrows are not collapsing. You know, if a burrow collapse in the middle of the season, what happens is the, the egg or the chick will get crushed. And so that was just directly impacting how many chicks they were able to raise successfully. So just by reducing and stabilizing their underground burrows, there's about about 60% of the chicks are happily fledged, and that's pretty much the, the normal. One thing we do, too, is we compare our work with the Fairland Islands. The Fairland Islands have the same species, the island group off San Francisco, and so what's really great is we can, we can have a metric for both places. And so we've seen that their ability to raise chicks has stabilized to be around 60%. We've also seen in this restoration area, the area where we're doing most of the planting and protection work, that every year the population has increased. So really that's what we want to see. We want to see the the numbers grow and at least be stable. And growing is fantastic. And they have been growing every year in this restoration area. And there's about 330 birds now, rhinoceros auklets in this area. Is there an area that's not being restored for to just to compare, or is it is there overall just a the whole island attempting to be restored? 
The island does have, there are cohabitation challenges with the sea lions. Um, not so much the, the elephant seals are not able to climb, but the, the California sea lions, you know, they actually have articulated hips and they can climb up cliffs. And so you do have the sea lions up on top of the island terrace with the seabirds. So there are some areas that have just been designated as sea lion haul-out spots, and those areas we wouldn't attempt to plant. Um, so we are sort of separating out and doing some intervention, I would say, and um, separating out some of the sea lions from the other habitat so that everybody can coexist. <laughs> <laughs> so is the goal at this point now to, to keep monitoring, or are there... Um... What's the what's the work now that you've worked on putting these burrows out? Are there still more burrows to be put out? Is there more work to be done to feel that this area is on its way to thriving? Yes, there's more more need. We have the species, the Cassin's Ocklet, which is another success story because Cassin's Ocklets are declining off California. However, they colonized on Nuevo Island late, like in the 80s. They started colonizing, and um, they are increasing. And... There's unfortunately most of their habitat is in this one old boardwalk structure that was part of the lightkeeper's house. This area is it's going to fall down. It's going to erode into the sea during a big storm. And so we are trying to encourage the Cassin's Ocklet into natural burrows and ceramic nest modules. And they they're much smaller birds and they have different needs than the rhinoceros ocklets. And so we are, right now, we're redesigning the nest modules and customizing them using the ceramics for this different bird. Excellent. How did things fare out through the heavy winter? I know you had really good success, breeding success, last year in 2016, but then we had a really heavy winter this year. And is it too early to tell in terms of um, returning birds and burrows holding up through those big rains? Well, the rains didn't cause too much damage, actually, on the island. Um, it did cause some habitat on the mainland to be lost, some of the cliff-nesting cormorants on the mainland. Um, There's a lot of sloughing, but the island did pretty well. And actually, the rain did help the plants because we were in years of drought, which was actually affecting the island as well. So the, um, the, the, the plants are happier this year. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. You need, I guess you need water to regrow vegetation, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's awesome. So for folks that want to learn more about this project, I also know with the ongoing needs that you have to keep it going and, and keep working on restoring, how can people participate in donating to this program? I also know you have a, a list of gear that you need, a lot of maritime gear. And some of this stuff, I was like, oh, I think we could round up some of this stuff at home and like, boxes and stuff. So can you share how people can track what Konos' work and how they can um, get involved in, in donating if possible? Yeah, you can track our work on Facebook and Instagram and donate from there as well. Oikonos.org is the, the website. And if you search on Ani Nuevo Island, you'll find different links. We do all of our own boat operations, and for sure we need outboards and the stainless steel hardware and things that um, you need for small boat operations. So um, donations on that level would be fantastic. And having 
partners and having individual donors that really value multidisciplinary work and value that we're applying it directly to conservation. Um, we really need you know more individuals participating in um, in our projects so that we can so we can keep it going. Folks can go to oikonos o i k o n o s dot o r g to follow more of this work. And I, I'll just share, you have a beautiful website, just really nice. And it's almost like looking through art gallery. <laughs> um, so really well done. And people can learn more about the work there and see some of the videos of the restoration sites. And if you want to contribute, there's ways to contribute for the website too. So Michelle, any last pieces you want to share with us about this work? Yeah, I think I just want to make a pitch that sometimes it's a struggle for biologists to innovate because a lot of our funding, it's, you know, it's pressure to get things done in one year and it's pressure to have outcomes. And I just really think whenever you have an opportunity to like, reimagine and have a, re- a different approach to something, if you believe it will lead to an improvement, that's really the opportunity that I think the conservation community needs to grab, grab when we can. This project is a really wonderful example. I was trying to look for others that um, approach conservation and solving ecological problems through these interdisciplinary partnerships. And I couldn't, I didn't do a ton of research, but there was nothing other that was popping out. And I heard about your program involving the artists. I just thought, oh, that's, that's it. That's amazing. And that's a great way to approach it. And so I was trying to look at other examples and I'm still looking. So I definitely want to show more um, of people that are using this interdisciplinary approach and highlight it because it's just a great way to bring multiple minds together to solve problems. So kudos to Oikonos for, for working on this and helping these seabirds out. Thanks again for joining us today on Ocean Currents. Thanks, Jenny, for everything you do. All right. We'll take care. And all right. For folks tuning in, you're listening to Ocean Currents here on KWMR. And I just had Michelle Hester on from Oikonos Ecosystem Knowledge. And we've been talking about a seabird restoration project on Anunueva Island that took a really neat interdisciplinary approach, working with artists, ceramicists, and and also um, habitat experts to work together to restore this island, bringing it back for the seabirds that had a lot of degraded habitat, and a really wonderful example, Iconos.org. If you want to learn more, follow the work that they do helping seabirds, and mostly on islands, which is, is really exciting. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk with Rebecca Johnson from the California Academy of Sciences. So stick around. setting up shop for breeding, there are some good tides coming up for us to get out and explore the intertidal zone. But Rebecca Johnson of the California Academy of Sciences wants us to do more than just explore. They want us to contribute to a statewide effort to document coastal biodiversity. So I'm thrilled to welcome back Rebecca Johnson of the California Academy of Science Citizen Science Program. Rebecca is a scientist who specializes in nudibranchs. And she's also the 2017 Bay Nature Local Hero Environmental Education Award recipient, along with her colleague and co-leader, Allison Young. So, Rebecca, congratulations on your award and welcome. You're live on KWMR. 
Thanks so much, Jenny, and thanks for having me back with you and your listeners. You're starting a BioBlitz in in about a month here. What is a BioBlitz? So a BioBlitz is when a bunch of people come together in one place at one time to document all of the biodiversity they can find. So um, record all of the plants and animals and other life that um, we can find in one place. The one that's coming up here, Snapshot Cal Coast, is this a specific bioblitz that you're coordinating? Yeah, so Snapshot Cal Coast is kind of like a bioblitz expanded, right, on steroids. So bioblitzes are usually are held, like I said, in one place at one time. Um, in our case at the Academy, we hold and run a lot of bioblitzes with local partners where we work in one local park or a county park or one beach or on private land, we've partnered with the Marine Agriculture Land Trust um, to work on their private land. So those are one place at one time trying to discover and document biodiversity. Snapshot Cal Coast is that same thing, people coming to one place to record everything they can in one local place, but happening in lots of places at one time. So this year, um, June 23rd to July 2nd, there will be over 50 BioBlitz is happening along the California coast, organized by local partners, um, getting people you know, out in Del Norte County to um, go out and look for um, creatures in the intertidal, and in, in Del Mar Beach in San Diego, looking um, for the same thing. But so people locally looking where they are, but then we're kind of combining everything together so we can get a one-time snapshot of the biodiversity of the cal- entire California coast. Is, and this, has this been going on for a few years? Is the goal to do this every year from here on out so there's like this one week of a snapshot? Yeah, so the goal is to make this an annual event, kind of like um, Coastal Cleanup Day that we have in California, um, but this is only the second year. That's great. How was the first year? Did you have a good turnout? The first year was amazing. So um, we had a pretty um, small window and that we were for our planning and organizing, but we worked with really great and amazing partners up and down the state. So last year we had about 24 different events. Um, to for Over 400 people participated. We observed over 900 species um, and made over 7,000 observations. Wow. And this is all in the intertidal zone, right? So last year it, we really focused on the rocky intertidal Mm-hmm. Um, this year, we are still hoping that people get out to the Rocky and our tidal areas, but we're expanding it um, and having and asking people to do events all along the coast, um, anywhere, any habitat that, that works for them. That um, We really want this to be an event that um, builds community, but also um, uses and works with the community and the expertise that already exists up and down our state. So there are a couple of people doing some events in marshes or in estuaries. Um, we're kind of saying that if people can do rocky intertidal, sandy beaches, docks, and dunes, like those are the things we're most interested in, but um, really anywhere along our coast is um, a place that we're interested in gathering data and getting people out there exploring. So can people just go out on their own during that time and participate? They can. So we are um, working with all of these amazing partners to organize small events. Some of those are open to the public. Some of those are just for staff or volunteers that already work in certain places. But because we use an app um, called iNaturalist, that's an app and a web platform, anyone can make observations. 
Um, all you have to do is download the app or take your camera, a digital camera, out um, along the coast. And if you see um, a plant or an animal or evidence of a plant and animal or animal, so a shell or a sand dollar test, um, if you take a picture with your phone, um, it's automatically marked with the date and time and where you took that photo. And then if you share that photo with iNaturalist, um, that counts for the BioBlitz, for the Snapshot Cal Coast. So you don't have to be part of a big group. Any observation that is shared with iNaturalist that is made along the California coast from June 23rd to July 2nd counts for our Snapshot Cal Coast. So you don't even have to know what these things are. You can just take a picture exactly. and con- contribute. Yeah, this is the, one of the most amazing things about iNaturalist, that it, that it is a social network and a community of people who are naturalists. And so you don't have to know what you're taking a picture of. You just have to take a good enough picture or series of pictures that someone else can identify it for you. So, for example, if it was that sand dollar, you might want to take a picture of the, one, the top side and the bottom side, the oral side and the ab oral side, take a picture of both sides. Um, get close enough up that people can see what you're trying to take a picture of. And if you share that, and even if you didn't know if it was a sand dollar, you didn't, but you knew maybe it was an animal, you could say this is an animal and someone will help you identify it. There's a huge community um, of naturalists and people that are literally waiting to help people <laughs> identify what they found. That is so cool. So you can take a guess at what you think it is and then you can get some help in verifying your identity. Uh, identity. Exactly. And it's almost better to take a guess because you imagine people, this is a big database. There have been over 4 million observations made on iNaturalist. So people have alerts, just like you might have on Facebook or any other social network. People have alerts set up. And like for me, I might have an alert that says, nudibranchs of California. <laughs> so I will get a, like a little alert or a little post that tells me there's been a nudibranch um, up, uploaded from the coast of California. So that helps me um, see things more quickly. If it has no identification, if someone uploads it without guessing what it is, then it takes a little longer for me to find it. So even if you say, I think this is a mollusk or I think this is a, a bird, um, that helps get it to people that know a lot about those groups and can help get a finer identification. I noticed that you have a most wanted list, and what is the most wanted list all about? So we have a most wanted list. Actually, I think on our website has a lot of information, and this is actually still last year's most wanted species list, but we're updating it. But really, we want people to look for everything, right? We want people to be out there and discover and be, you know, something that's new to them and is really interesting is just as important as something that has never been seen, right, if it's interesting to somebody else. So um, we want people to discover and explore and be excited. But we also, there are some things that we're really, really asking people to pay special attention to. Um, We're asking people to look for um, starfish or sea stars because we've had um, the the sea stars along our coast have been so hit by the starfish wasting. Um, So we're asking people to look for all species um, of starfish, especially a couple that we really haven't seen or we think might be um, in decline or haven't recovered as well. Um, One of those is the six-rayed star, which is called Leptosterius, and the other is um, Pisaster brevispinus, which is a pink um, sea star. Mm -hmm. And then we are also asking people to look for things that we know we have evidence that their ranges are changing, um, especially things that are moving north. Um, and in that group, 
um, their California spiny lobsters because we've seen molts of spiny lobsters in Marin County um, and San Francisco County, and now we just had a record from San Mateo County this last week. And that species, its northern range limit is thought to be um, Monterey Bay or the southern edge of Monterey Bay. Wow. And then a few nudibranchs that we're also looking at their ranges. Um, one is called the Hopkins Rose. Okinia rosacea. And last year during Snapshot, we were in the midst of this big bloom of, um, of the Hopkins rose where we were seeing just astronomical numbers of them in our tide pools. So we want to keep a track of that. So we have a few things, a few nudibranchs, mostly things that have fallen into a couple categories. Starfish wasting, their ranges are changing. And we also have some introduced species that um, our management partners would love us to be on the lookout for because with all these eyes looking, we can get a really good, a better idea of where um, these introduced species might be found. So that was what I wanted to ask. Who gets to this, who can use this data? Who, how, who's, who analyzes the data and how is it shared so that uh, resource management agencies can, can tap into it? So these data on iNaturalist are completely open. So once, not only can some, anyone help you ID things, anyone can look at these data. Anyone can download them. Anyone can use them and map them and look and analyze them in any which way they might want to. So that's kind of amazing that all of these data that we're collecting together are open and available for anyone that has questions. Um, but we use them. So my colleague Allison Young and I here at the Academy, um, we're scientists and we're interested in how these ranges are changing. And so some of these data are used by us to um, understand what changes we're seeing. And so we are analyzing those. And then our partners at um, California Department of Fish and Wildlife are also interested in these data, as well as um, the folks from the Coastal Commission who are especially interested in some of the introduced species. But we ask a lot of our science colleagues up and down the coast for things they might be interested in um, and things that they would like us to be on the lookout for. So they are specifically interested in those data. Like Leptisterius, um, there's a professor, um, Sarah Cohen, at San Francisco State. She and her lab have been looking at this um, species, and so she is particular and particularly interested in those data and will be using them right away. And last year, actually, we found a beach where this... Um, the starfish was really common in a beach where she did not know, she hadn't seen it and didn't know it was there. So by getting out to that beach and going some places that maybe people don't go all the time, we were able to discover like a new population. That is so great. It's such so cool. There's this tool that people can share their wonderings and findings with um, and really make a difference to lots of people and not just keep it to themselves as a personal discovery, but really sharing to make a difference. So Really neat program. Thank you. Can people uh, contribute outside of the specific BioBlitz time? Is that data considered? Or, I mean, I understand there's a specific time period here, but suppose people want to contribute outside those dates. Can they do that? Oh, yeah, for sure. So this is a particularly, like, we have this as a targeted um, couple of weeks, but iNaturalist is for anywhere and anytime, right? So you can make observations of... Um, plants and animals, wherever you are, whenever, and those data are shared. Go to iNaturalist the same way I just described. And so um, people, um, management agencies, people focused on conservation and scientists use those data um, in ways that you couldn't even imagine because not only do they go to iNaturalist, which I just, you know, those are open and easy for people to find on iNaturalist, but once someone has agreed with an identification, and this thing that you saw then, like a picture um, with a date and time and with a location, 
once someone has identified it and confirmed or confirmed your identification, that really becomes a species occurrence record, and that is shared with global databases, a global database called the Global Biodiversity Information Facility, and that is where anyone who's interested in where plants and animals are found around the world, that is really their first stop to understand and find out where museum specimens are have been collected and where these things are found right now. So data, you know, if you took a picture, if you walked outside your office and took a picture of a butterfly right now, that picture could be used by someone who's trying to understand the distribution of that species. That is so cool. So we just have a couple minutes left. Are there any specific events that you want to share um, in the Bay Area that people can just join in? Suppose they want to be with other people. Um, are there other are there events happening around here? Yeah, so we, Allison and I, are leading and co-hosting a bunch of different events in the Bay Area. So the best place to find all of those events, um, we're currently updating our list now, but is on the Cal Academy website. If you just Google Cal Academy and snapshot Cal Coast. You can find all of the, a list of all of our events. But two I wanted to highlight um, is on um, June 27th, we'll be out at Agate Beach in Marin County, or also known as Duxbury Reef. Um, and then on the 29th of June, we'll be out at Doran Beach in Sonoma County. So look for the details of those events on our website, but those are two events that are pretty close for some of your local listeners. Um, and we'd love to have um, folks sign up. So you can go to our website and learn how to sign up um, so we know to expect you. Excellent. Um, how are you getting around the uh, unfortunate carcass at Agate Beach of the blue whale? Oh, my gosh. So I haven't been out to Agate Beach to see this blue whale, but um, I think it'll be something to see, and we'll see. The tides should be low enough that we should be able to get around it um, during um, the Snapshot Cal Coast, but it's kind of an incredible thing, this this whale, and um, quite um, upsetting that it was most likely due to ship strike. Um, yeah, but, but that it was a known whale is one of the most interesting things, right? That because people, volunteers and professionals had seen this whale show its fluke, um, we know a lot about how this whale spent its life before um, it ended up at, at Duxbury. Yeah, terribly sad. It's been a really horrible event and an interesting way to really engage people, actually. A lot of people have been really interested and not aware of the ship strike issue. So, Yeah, I think, you know, unfortunately, that is like the, that's the kind of silver lining is that people can see these animals close up and how magnificent and gigantic they are and then really think about um, the human disturbances like ship strikes and, whale and entanglement in gear that um, are really harmful and detrimental to their health and survival. Rebecca, thanks for sharing about these dates, June 27th at Agate Beach and June 29th at Duran Beach. And this is a snapshot Cal Coast focused on the entire coast of California. Does iNaturalist take in observations from other parts of the world and other parts? Like, Can anyone participate in iNaturalist or is it just California? Yeah, so anyone can participate in iNaturalist. So it's global, worldwide, observations from anywhere by anyone um, are super welcome. Um, and I should mention that, um, that, that the Snapshot Cal Coast is supported by the Resources Legacy Fund Foundation, and so they help us do all this work, and without them, it wouldn't be possible. That's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing about this. I'm really excited and 
going to look at the tides. I just was out with our family last week and had a, such a great time tide pulling, and we're so happy to see so many sea stars back. I know. It's great. So I want to come back out. So maybe we'll check out and see if we can yeah, host a group. Yeah, because we're talking about a little um, smallest bay, so we'd love to get out there with you. So we'll, we can talk a little more. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again. And we would love to hear some of the results on another time. Oh, yeah. We'd love to be back and um, share all the results. All right. Maybe well, like in August or September. Thank you, Rebecca. Have a great afternoon. All right. Thanks. You too, Jenny. Snapshot Cal Coast coming up here in California, June 23rd through July 2nd. I have a lot of other announcements I want to share. I'm going to take a quick break. We'll come back and share some other exciting things happening around here. Stay tuned. You've been listening to Ocean Currents. This is a special month. It's World Oceans Day this week. And boy, more than ever, we need a global day of ocean celebration and collaboration. And that's what World Oceans Day is about. This June 8th, this Thursday, is the official day. And this is an official day that the UN recognizes. The United Nations General Assembly passed this in December 2008. So that every year, a group of people can come together and celebrate and collaborate for a better future for our ocean. So check out worldoceansday.org online to learn more about World Oceans Day. There's events happening all around the Bay Area. You can look at that website to find them. Um, The Ocean Film Festival that we collaborate with a lot, and I've brought on a lot on ocean currents, they're having many Bay Area screenings of films from the 2017 festival. You can go to oceanfilmfest.org to see where these screenings are. Some of them are in Marin. Um, We, the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, are co-sponsoring one uh, film viewing at the Oakland Museum of California on Friday, June 9th, as part of Friday nights at the Oakland Museum of California. And we'll have about seven films from the Ocean Film Festival um, showing at the Oakland Museum of California starting at 7 o'clock. So come on early. You can come see the Cordell Gallery in the Oakland Museum and the Natural Sciences Gallery. Stick around for the films. And there's food trucks and all sorts of fun events that are happening at the museum on Friday nights. They stay open late. So check out worldoceansday.org for other events happening or take a personal commitment to figuring out what it is you want to do to help build a better future for the ocean. Um, Another exciting thing happening in August is the Ocean Exploration Trust, which is a group that is led by Bob Ballard. Um, On the exploration vessel Nautilus, they're going to be exploring in Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, which is right off the coast here of Point Reyes. They have deep water ROVs that go thousands of feet deep, deeper than we have ever been for sure. And we're really excited to be um, going out there with them in August, August 5th through the 14th. And this is the cool thing, is that you can participate by logging online, nautiluslive.org, and you can actually watch the dives happening. We're gonna, they'll be streaming live to the Internet while the ROV is exploring underwater. So you can tune in and watch what we're seeing um, as we're seeing it live online. So check that out, nautiluslive.org, August 5th through the 14th, to explore some really deep water areas in the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. 
I lastly want to leave us with our Positively Ocean episode for the month produced by Liz Fox and focusing on another volunteer monitoring program. This is Liz Fox at Positively Ocean, where we celebrate the ocean and look at what's working well. This week's story takes us to the shores of San Francisco, a city that drums right up to the edge of the ocean. And the ocean responds by carpeting the city in its signature dense fog. Daily, flocks of birds and rafts or pods of marine mammals frequent the beaches, and other days they wash up dead. But which changes are significant, say, from a catastrophic pollutant like oil spill? And which changes are part of the normal ebb and flow of where the ocean meets the land? To answer those questions, scientists need data, and lots of it. That's why Beachwatch, a long-term volunteer monitoring program, supports a cadre of ocean fanatics to scour the shores monthly. It all began after the 1971 oil tanker collision at the mouth of the bay. Scientists knew that the slick had devastated coastal life, but they couldn't quantify it. Without accurate accounting, no one could specify cleanup demands. So scientists at the Point Reyes Bird Observatory, now known as the Point Blue Conservation Science, began counting. They assigned community members, citizens and non-citizens alike, to specific plots of the beach to observe and record birds and marine mammals, both dead and alive. Dr. Sarah Allen collected and crunched beach data when the program began. Today, she is the science program lead for the National Park Service, Western Division. What is terrific about the Beach Watch program is that this is a highly trained group of volunteers, and because they're really well-trained, the data has held up to scrutiny. By highly trained, Allen means that Beachwatch volunteers study and practice rigorously for about 80 hours with a mentor before they hit the beach on their own. And most volunteers stick around for years, becoming true experts in their assigned areas. The investment pays off. Because of its historic reputation, scientists and policymakers trust Beachwatch data to inform their decisions. Its foundation can be applied to any potential threat. Allen said that Beachwatch data clearly demonstrated the fatal effects of gillnet fishing on marine mammals and birds in the 1980s. Then resource managers decided to ban the practice in some parts of coastal California. Likewise, regulators change shipping lanes to avoid large marine mammal feeding grounds to reduce the potential for ship strikes. Now under the leadership of the Greater Farallands National Marine Sanctuary and the Greater Farallands Association, the Beach Watch program has grown its number of volunteers and expanded its geographic reach and added to its tallies evidence of ambient oil, those tar-like beach blobs that regularly wash up Today, Beachwatch includes 150 volunteers who cover the 210-mile stretch between Point Año Nuevo in San Mateo County and Manchester Beach in Mendocino County. While volunteers typically already care about the natural world, their participation in Beachwatch ensures more of the public has a greater understanding and perceived stake in policy outcomes. They're also your best advocates because they are experiencing real-world things that happen on their beaches. They're finding California sea lions that are starving because there's an El Nino event. They're finding dead whales that have been hit by ships. 
And so they can be an advocate and communicate their own personal experiences to the broader public. The Greater Fairlands Association will host two Beach Watch volunteer orientation sessions this summer. The first is in Gualala on Saturday, July 8th from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. And the second is in Bodega Bay on Wednesday, July 12th, 7.30 p.m. to 9 p.m. After orientation, new volunteers must complete an 80-hour training in August. To get involved or for more information about Beach Watch, visit farallons.noa.gov. That's F-A-R-A-L-L-O-N-E-S dot N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. And that's an example of folks doing right by the ocean. Until next time, I'll be searching for all things positively ocean. For Ocean Currents Radio on KWMR in West Marin, this is Liz Fox reporting in Berkeley, California. Thank you, Liz Fox, for producing another great episode of Positively Ocean, highlighting positive things happening for the ocean. And thank you all for listening today to Ocean Currents. Enjoy the Ocean Bay or whatever body of water you can get into safely. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin, KWMR. To the lonely sea and the sky And all I ask is a tall ship And a star to steer her by Wheels kick and the wind song and the white sails are shaking and a, a gray mist on the sea's face and a gray dawn of Must go down to the sea again for the call of the running tide. Here's a wild call and a clear call that may not be denied. And all I ask is a windy day. With the white clouds flying And the flung spray and the blown spume And the seagulls are crying I must go down to the seas again Gypsy life To the gull's way And the whale's way Where the wind is Like a wet-hit knife And all I ask is a merry
must go down to the sea again I must go down to the sea again oh. Thank you to Lynn Walsh for singing Sea Fever, a poem by John Macefield. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks to bensound.com for royalty-free music for the Ocean Currents podcast. For more info, visit www.bensound.com.